0: (laughs) okay all right we're gonna go for it all right so snakes and doves this is a sermon from matthew 10 but i want to jump back a little bit uh to kind of set the scene of what we're going to talk about have you ever heard the phrase be careful what you ask for or be careful what you wish for or be careful what you pray for How about, be careful what Jesus tells you to pray pray for. Probably never heard that one, huh? Okay, so uh, we're going to jump back to chapter 9 of Matthew, and I'm sorry I don't have the uh, scriptures up on the screen, but uh, I will read it to you. Matthew 9, verse 35 through 38. And I'm reading from New Living Translation, so feel free to get your Bibles out and follow along, but it may sound a little different. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest, ask him to send more workers into his fields. So Jesus is traveling around with his guys, and he sees the crowds of disciples throughout Israel. uh, Not disciples, the crowds of people throughout Israel who are bewildered and helpless. And he compares them to sheep without a shepherd. Remember that phrase. We're going to come back to it. And uh, he tells his disciples that they should pray to God for workers to help with his great harvest of souls. And then in chapter 10, Jesus answers that prayer himself. By sending out the disciples as the workers. So he tells the disciples to pray for workers. Then he says, guess what? You're the workers. So uh, Jesus is kind of a joker. but uh, So we're going to go on to actual what we're looking at today in chapter 10. As he's commissioning these guys to go out and do that work that he just told them to pray for. So he's gathering his disciples. And he's going to commission them to go out on this first real mission solo trip without him. So you've heard of the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. You guys are familiar with that, uh, most likely. Well, this is the Little Commission. Uh, verses 5 through 15 are specific instructions for that mission. So the verse, first part of 10, I'm not going to read. It's just a listing of the disciples. And uh, he he gives them power, and then it's a list of the disciples. But what we're going to focus on is later here. 5-15 through 15 are specific instructions for this mission. The disciples are to tell people that the kingdom of God is near. They're going to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. He gives them instructions to pack light and to trust God for their needs on this trip. He gives them instructions on dealing with the people they encounter along the way and how those communities react to the good news message. So I'm going to read that from Matthew 10, verse 5-15. Jesus sent out the twelve apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Give as freely as you have received. Don't take any money in your money belts, no gold, silver, or even copper coins. Don't carry a traveler's bag with a change of clothes and sandals or even a walking stick. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve to be fed. Whenever you enter a city or village, search for a worthy person and stay in his home until you leave town. When you enter the home, give it your blessing. If it turns out to be a worthy home, let your blessing stand. If it does not, take back the blessing. If any household or town refuses to welcome you or listen to your message, shake its dust from your feet as you leave. I tell you the truth, the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah We'll be better off than such a town on the judgment day. So there's his instructions. And these are specific to this mission, right? He's telling these guys, this is what you're going to do. I want you to go out you're going to do these these things. You're going to heal the sick. You're going to raise the dead. You're going to cure leprosy. You're going to cast out demons. And he gives them specific ways to behave. And like I said, they're going to travel light because he wants them to trust God. No gold, silver. He doesn't want them to take copper, so not even a little bit of money. And... They're not even supposed to take a traveler's bag, which in some uh, things I read, that's referred to like a beggar's bag. People would have bags on their belts that would, ref- you know, they could, people put could money in. So they're not they're not going to take that. Um, but they're not to refuse hospitality. Um, they do deserve to be fed, and they're not going to take a, a second set of clothes, a second set of sandals, or even like a second walking stick, um, because they're just supposed to travel light and uh, trust God for the things that they need. And then, you know, as people, um, if they don't accept the blessing of the gospel, then they're just supposed to shake off the dust of that town and go on because those people aren't going to hear the gospel and the good news. And so that's specific instructions for for this thing. But starting in verse 16, it appears that Jesus switches up his message a little bit. You've heard from Randy in the past about 2 furs in the Bible. You guys remember 2 Um So these are prophecies or messages that apply to somebody at one time, but also to someone in the future. So one example of this is Isaiah 7.14, which was a sign given to Ahaz that Assyria would come to attack Judah. It was also a prophecy of the coming Messiah. So Isaiah 7.14 says, all right then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child she will give a birth she will give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel which means god is with us so ahaz was worried about neighboring countries uh, attacking him and god says you don't need to worry about those countries you need to be worried about assyria and this young woman is going to give birth to a child and before he's even grown up the kings of those countries you're worried about are going to be gone, and Assyria is going to be attacking you. And this is the sign that I'm giving you for this. However, we also know that it's a prophecy of the Messiah because he was born to the virgin, and so that's a twofer. That's an example of a twofer prophecy in the Bible, and they're all throughout the Bible of prophecies that apply to something immediately and something in the future, and sometimes they're even threefers, right? Uh, we we get those a lot, too, and so we can apply them in multiple ways, and uh, I think it's pretty neat how God is, I mean, he just, he, he knows, of course, he knows the future, and he knows the past, and he's in charge of all that, and so he gives, he's really efficient with his messengers, and uh, he's able to give multiple messages to multiple people through one messenger, and um, so I think that uh, Revelation is another good example of that. I think there's messages in Revelation for the people at that time that they needed to hear about the persecution they were going through, but there's also messages that we can see um, for us in the future. So anyway. So here's a twofer, twofer in Matthew chapter ten. So <clears throat> starting in verse sixteen, through the rest of the ten, through the rest of chapter ten, he's preparing his disciples. For the resistance and persecution that they're going to experience on this little mission of theirs, but a lot of the persecution he's describing is not things that would happen until later in their lives. Until you know, we read about it in Acts, or you know, it's after he's gone on, and um, so he's given them the great commission, and so these things are obviously sometime in the future. They don't happen on this little trip. And so just to remind you of the Great Commission from Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, I said you all are familiar with it, but just to make sure, this is uh, Jesus at the end of his time on earth after he's been resurrected and he's getting ready to go back up into heaven. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But this great commission wasn't just for those first-generation disciples, but it continues to be a mandate for believers throughout all generations, right? This is not, that great commission is for us. It wasn't just for those 12 guys. Uh, That's for, for the people that they evangelized and brought into the family, and it's for all generations, including us. So um, we have a responsibility to take the good news uh, to those around us and to help them to grow like Christ. And so because of this, we can expect to meet resistance and even persecution as we do this, these, this mission faithfully to God's word. So I think it's helpful to look at Jesus' warnings and instructions to his guys here in chapter 10 and see how they apply to our mission today. All right, so jumping back to Matthew 10, verse 16. All right, so Jesus is starting to talk about the—it's kind of a periscope thing. So you see things near, you see things far. So you've got the near, the immediately, and the far, even the future. So look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. So Jesus likes this sheep metaphor. So this, in this case, the disciples are the sheep among wolves. Earlier he was talking about the people of Israel being the sheep. And uh, but this time the disciples are the sheep. Jesus likes his sheep metaphors, like I said. Matthew seven earlier, uh, Jesus said, "Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves." And so Jesus refers to false prophets as vicious wolves. Paul does the same thing. Acts twenty, uh, verse twenty nine, Paul says, "I know that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in." will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. There's uh, obviously, all throughout the Bible, there's a lot of references to sheeps, to Christians as sheep and believers as sheep. But a lot of it goes back to the Old Testament. Everybody's familiar with Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. And, uh, but there's also Jeremiah 23, one through 1 through 6. What sorrow awaits the leaders of my people, the shepherds of my sheep, For they have destroyed and scattered the very ones they were expected to care for, says the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to these shepherds. Instead of caring for my flock and leading them to safety, you have deserted them and driven them to destruction. Now I will pour out judgment on you for the evil you have done to them. So again, we have people who are supposed to be leading the flock, and instead they've led them to destruction. And so we have this uh, metaphor of sheep, And wolves as false leaders, false teachers. And Jesus says, I'm sending you out. I'm purposefully sending you out among there so you can expect persecution. You can expect people to try to um, distract you and lead you astray. So, what are you going to do about it? The point of the message is that they should expect it. And he says later in chapter 10, he says, If I'm going to be persecuted, if Jesus is going to be persecuted, then we will too, because if we're his disciples, we're not greater than him. Jesus was persecuted. We're not greater than him, then we're going to be too. If we're not experiencing some some form of resistance, maybe we need to evaluate how well we are doing on the mission that he's given us. Jesus says, in light of this expected persecution, his disciples need to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Or in the New Living Translation, it says shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. I don't know what translation you might have, but it's going to say something along those lines. But what does that mean? So we're going to look at that. What does it mean to be wise as a snake or a serpent? Aren't snakes like evil? Aren't they? Why would Jesus use a snake as something we're supposed to be like if the serpent was evil? Well, let's look at that word wise or shrewd. So the the... The Greek word there is and I, I don't know Greek I can't pronounce words. I'm just going to say the way it looks like which is phronimos. Um But what the tools I've used tell me that means is shrewd or prudent. So it's taking care of the business you've been tasked with. So it's not like wisdom we think of like uh, acquired skill or acquired wisdom. So that would be the word sophos. Um, this is more about Taking, like it says, taking care of the business you've been tasked with. So some other places in New Testament that that is used, uh, specifically by Jesus in Matthew verse 7. Jesus says, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. So wisdom in this case, is listening to Jesus' teachings and following them. Because if we don't, we build our lives on anything else but Jesus' teachings. We're building them on sand that's going to be washed away in the storm. And it may look solid. It may even last for a while. But in the end, it's going to go away. I was, uh, last fall, I went on a fishing trip with some friends on Lake Kaw. And there is this house. Lake Caw is pretty interesting because it's wild. He called it, my friend called it a wild lake in that there's no, there's not a whole lot of, it's not a like grand lake where there's a lot of um, houses and things built up around it. I think all the land around it is core of engineer. And so that like the entire lake, I saw one or two houses that were near the shore. And there was one house that was near the shore and it had a, like the only house I ever saw on the entire lake but it was up on a bluff so it probably was a grandfathered in or built before the Corps of Engineer bought the land or whatever anyway um, it was up on a bluff and my friend Matt that I was fishing with said he's been fishing there for years and years and he said every year that he goes that house is a little closer to the bluff and um, he said it's a beautiful house it's a great big beautiful house But eventually, that bluff is going to be out from underneath that house. The house is going to get washed away, you know, because that bluff just, the erosion keeps going away. And that's what it makes me think of. Whoever built that house spent a lot of money to build that beautiful house and thought it was solid. And it may be for years and years and years, but eventually the erosion is going to wash that house away. And so it was not a wise spot to build a house. And that's what Jesus says. If you build your house on anything other than solid rock, which is him, then it's, it's not wisdom. And so wisdom is listening to Jesus' teachings and obeying them. So it's not just listening, but obeying them. And so that's, that's wisdom. And again, we're thinking in terms of being shrewd, taking care of business, doing the things you've been told to do. And so that's, that's what, this, what Jesus says that is about Matthew 24 a faithful sensible servant the word sensible is this word we've been talking about phronimos is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them if the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job there will be a, re- a reward i'll tell you the truth the master that put the serv- the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns so the shrewd Wise servant is the one the master can trust with responsibility. So, if you want to be wise in the kingdom of God, then be trustworthy, be responsible with what God has given you to do. We don't all have the same responsibility in the kingdom of God, but we all have some responsibility in the kingdom of God because all of us have been given the Great Commission, right? We've all been told to make disciples of all nations. And so, whatever that looks like in your life, we all have that responsibility. So if we want to be wise, then we need to be trustworthy with that responsibility, and that makes us sensible and faithful. Again, more parables from Jesus in Matthew 25. This is the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bride, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, Believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. <clears throat> so this story doesn't always make sense to us because we don't understand the culture and the wedding the way weddings work. We don't have bridesmaids waiting for the bridegroom party to come and go out in the same way that they do things in this culture that Jesus was talking to. But from what I understand, um, these were not, you know, they were like the bridal party and the bridesmaids would wait for the bridegroom party to come out of the house and getting ready to go to the actual wedding. And he was delayed. And so, you know, they didn't have enough lamp oil. To light the way and to go in, and so they had to go get more lamp oil. And they weren't, they weren't there when he came through, and so they were foolish. And so, what Jesus says was wise in this case was being ready for his return, and being planning ahead of time, and knowing, um, knowing the times, knowing what was going on, and being ready for him. And so, there is another example of wisdom from Jesus in his parables. And there's a lot of other examples of what Jesus says is wise. He doesn't use this exact word, but we can look throughout there. And uh, we, have, we have examples of believers who acted shrewdly or wisely um, in order to fill their gospel mission. Um, and I think one of them is Paul in Athens. And uh, so I'm just going to read to you from Acts 17. And it doesn't use this word, but... Uh, I think this is an example of acting shrewdly and taking care of business and um, being wise. So it says, while Paul was waiting for them, his uh, other people in Athens, he is deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, What's this babbler trying to say about these strange ideas he picked up? Others said, He seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as all the foreigners in Athens, seemed to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the one, he is the God, who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his his offspring." And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, We want to hear more about this later. So the reason I think this is shrewd is because Paul was in Athens. He was in a foreign city, and he could have just buried his head in the sand and said, I don't, man, they've got all these gods here. It's just whack. I don't understand what's going on. Um, I'm just, I'm just going to go stay in the synagogue and uh, talk to these Jewish people and talk to them because I understand them. I don't want to even engage with this culture around me. I don't know what's going on. It's too crazy. But he knew enough. He went to the public square. He engaged the philosophers in Athens. He went to a place where he engaged the leading philosophers in Athens and debated them. And he used their own poets in this debate to talk about Jesus being God. And... So he didn't just hide his head in the sand. And I think that's uh, an interesting thing that we need to consider as we engage our culture. And um, we need to understand the times and what's going on around us enough to be able to engage the culture. And that's part of completing our mission. So that's part of being wise and shrewd is knowing what's going on around us. And, and let's look back at Colossians Uh, We've been in Colossians for a while, and um, this actually comes from the sermon I did that I filled in, last time I filled in, Colossians 2.8. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. So here's a reminder from Paul, again, same Paul, not to let the current cultural ways of thinking capture you. So if you're not examining what is culture and what is Christ, you're in danger of this. So we need to know culture well enough to understand what it is that is actually Christian, what's actually coming from Christ, and what it is that's just our culture imposing itself on our beliefs, and also how to answer culture. And if we can't answer culture, then we're going to have a problem when we encounter culture trying to um, debate us or tell us what to think. But it's also a reminder that the real powers behind the culture of the world is not people or institutions, it's spiritual powers. Paul says, in this nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of the world. So as a reminder, Paul says in Ephesians, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil in the heavenly places. So, again, to be wise, to be shrewd, we need to remember that it's not people, it's not institutions that are um, our enemies, and they're not our enemies. We're to love people, we're to to love um, our enemies even. But the true enemy is the unseen powers in the world around us. And so that's, you know, that's, we need to keep that in mind to be shrewd in what our mission is as we accomplish our mission of spreading the gospel. Okay, but we're also supposed to be innocent. So we're supposed to be shrewd as snakes, but innocent as doves. So doves were regarded in both Greek and Jewish culture of the first century as symbols of purity, integrity, and harmlessness. But the word for innocent literally means unmixed or pure. So to be innocent as doves means not to be mixed with the world system that we lived in. So that kind of harkens back to what Paul said in Colossians, doesn't it? But here's Paul again in Philippians 2:15 using the same word. Paul says, "Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people." So the way we live and conduct business is to be like a lighthouse in a world full of darkness. The way we live is a message to those around us from God. As we live our lives, people should be able to look at us and say, there's something different about that person. I want to see, I want to know more. I want to learn about what makes them different. And we can point them to God by the way we live. Um, you've heard that phrase, he may be the only Bible that someone has ever read. That's, what, that's kind of where that comes from. There's kind of a secondary uh, meaning in here. The shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. The uh, word for bright lights means stars. So shining like stars in the universe is another way to translate that. Jewish uh, cosmology in the first century saw stars as heavenly beings. Or angels, you might say. So it's a subtle reminder from Paul that we're not just flesh and blood, but we are eternal beings who have lives beyond this earth. So why get mixed up with early earthly systems when we will outlive them and we have so much more to offer than what earth has to offer? So we're to shine with the eternity in our hearts to the rest of the world and show that there's more to this life. Peter, who got this little commissioning firsthand, writes about living innocent, innocently as well. 1 Peter 3, 13-17. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing good, sorry, even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. If someone asks you about your Christian hope, be ready to explain it. So it does no good to be living as a light in a dark world and shining and being the Bible that people read when they come to ask you about it if you're not ready to explain it, right? So you need to be ready to explain what it is that is different about you to people when they ask. But we live innocently. We live in a way that shows people that there's something different. We may get persecuted for it. And Paul says, or Peter says, it's better to be persecuted for doing what's right than to be persecuted for doing what's wrong. It's not a new concept that we're not to be unmixed or that we are to be unmixed or to be pure from the world. God's people were always meant to stand out from the culture around them. If you look back in the Old Testament, it's the story of he took Abraham's family, he took one guy's, he created a family out of Abraham, and uh, he grew that into a whole group of people um, through, you know, the in in slavery in Egypt and he pulled them out of Egypt and he made a whole nation called Israel and then he settled them in the land that he promised to Abraham and he made a covenant with them and in the covenant he required them to live differently from the cultures that they were going to be surrounded by in the land that he was giving them and uh, he required them to live differently not just because he wanted them not to enjoy pork sandwiches but because by living differently, it was a light to the people around them that Yahweh was real. That There was something here. And the culture around them that they were living in was messed up. I mean, we live in a culture that you can look at and you can say, yeah, this is messed up. But their culture was really messed up. And so they were to live differently and show that there was a different way to live. And uh, that, that was why. And so that's why they were not allowed to mix with that culture. It wasn't just because God didn't like, you know, Hittites and Canaanites. It was because he was doing something with the Jewish people to show that he was real. It wasn't never it's not it wasn't racism or anything like that. It was about he had a plan and he needed the Jewish people to show his light to the world and it was always intending to bring everybody in the world into the family. Eventually, but he was working that out through the Jewish people first. And you look back from the beginning, and everybody was always intended to be a part of that, but it's part of his family. And his family is always meant to be separate from the culture because the culture is being influenced by these spiritual powers that are in rebellion against him. So that's why we're to be unmixed with the culture around us. So we're to be shrewd and understand the culture around us, but not be influenced and not be mixed with it. So you have a mission. Have you chosen to accept it? Um, If you do accept the mission to go on this mission with Jesus, and as a Christian, you should, because that's what it means to be a Christian is to be a disciple, then expect persecution at some level. Because that's what he says is going to happen. If you're not experiencing persecution or resistance or something in your life, then you need to evaluate how well you're following Jesus. We should be living shrewdly. We need to understand the world you live in and how it works. And we need to be um, doing the things that God has asked us to do to accomplish his mission. That's what it means to be shrewd, to be doing the things that he's asked us to do. We need to live innocently, so don't get mixed up with the world that we live in. Instead, be a light to it and point to Jesus. And we can look at John 17, 14, and uh, this is Jesus, and this is commonly called his high priestly prayer. And what that just means is that this is Jesus, he's about to be crucified, and he's praying for his disciples. And it's called a priestly prayer because he's going to God for his disciples, which is what a priest does. He intercedes with God for his people. And so he's praying for his disciples, but he's also praying in the prayer for all the Christians that are going to come after the disciples. He specifically mentions that. So I've always enjoyed this prayer or found it special because it's Jesus praying for me, and it's Jesus praying for you. And so let's read from this because it connects to what we're talking about. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but starting, this is John 17. I'm going to start with verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And I set myself apart on their behalf, so that they too may be truly set apart. I am not praying only on their behalf, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their testimony, that they will all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, And I am in you. I pray that they will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. So Jesus sent us into the world, but we are not part of the world. And that's what it means to be shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves, right? We are in the world, aware of it. We know how to accomplish our mission in the world, but we're not a part of it. We don't get mixed up in the culture and influenced by it, but we are aware of it and how to use it to accomplish our mission and do what Jesus asked us to do. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your wisdom, the real wisdom that you show through scriptures of um, the story we can look back and in, in how you knew everything would fall in place that you desired to have a relationship with us, but you knew that, um, we would run away from that. And yet you provided a way for that relationship to move forward. And you worked history throughout all of time to bring forth Jesus, to make that way for us to have a relationship with you. And I just thank you for that. Father, uh, thank you for including us in the mission in this world and uh, I know that even in the future that we will be a part of your mission and I just can't even imagine what that's going to look like and I just pray that we would be faithful to you, that we would be uh, shrewd servants who do what you have asked us to do, that we would be ones who are faithful to you Father, but also we would be Innocent, unmixed, and uh, set aside holy for you, Lord. Father, uh, thank you for the things you're doing in our lives. I pray that each of us would uh, be pursuing being a disciple of you. And I ask these things in your son's name.